welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 19th of July 2021 and this is episode 217. On this week's Dispatches podcast, Richard Merry talks about his latest book on the Argonne Forest during the Great War. This book is published by Pen and Sword. Richard spoke to me over the interweb from his home in England. Richard, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? I'm probably typical of my generation. That's to say I'm I'm 65 years old. And and, and the key for us was was the BBC series in 1964, The Great War, which commemorated the 50th sort of, one doesn't like to say anniversary, but commemorated the 50th um, year of of the war starting. And I think that enabled one to start having a dialogue because the Second World War, all my teachers at school were Second World War people. And I think it enabled you to start talking to people of my, my grandparents were a little bit older than I am now but one was actually with the series as a child you're actually able to say to your grandparents well what was it like you know I've seen it on television you've never talked it and could you tell me what it was like so I think for me it was this sort of tv series that enabled me to talk to my grandfather to great uncles to people who who had been there who were able to say for the first time that yes this was their experience and you know they they, they said that obviously the film couldn't show everything and be everywhere but they it did give you an idea which I don't think we'd had before of what life was like an ordinary British soldier especially people who were just called up and not volunteers who, who found themselves in France or Gallipoli or I, I, one of my relatives was in the uh, war in Mesopotamia you know people were just sort of projected to these places they they had little knowledge of most people didn't travel so I think to me that was the key that unlocked it and then how I came to write book was I, in the 1990s I was handed a shoebox box which had many postcards pictures and and some correspondence and I didn't take a lot of notice of it except my father said to me oh this is my uncle he, he was a bit of an heir do well and he, he died before the war so um he um he, I, I just as just some, somebody just come in the room so I wasn't able to talk to him directly but then I began to start fleshing out uh, the contents of the box and from that I built up the picture of my great uncle and then thanks to Google Translate I was able to work out the fact he hadn't been on the British sector at all. He'd been on the French sector and he was a member of the Foreign Legion. And from that, I, I grew the book and then the book grew a momentum of its own, which was not just to look at my great uncle's participation in the Argonne campaign in 1914-15, but to more broadly look at the whole campaign, which went on for four and a bit years. And then also something I think people have very little understanding, although Britain had sort of circa 800, 850,000 dead from the war, Britain had very very little physical damage done to itself. And I was very intrigued as to what had happened in France, which had huge damage done to the northeastern sector. So the book develops and about half of the book does talk about two things. One is the reconstruction of France after the war, but very importantly, this very complicated thing of the dead. You know, the the rules of the war were quite clear. France owned it, but um, as the war ended, especially America, a lot of lobbying started that the dead should be 
brought home. Well, Britain had spent an awful lot of time getting ready to build what was called the Second Pyramids in northern France, and they, they didn't much like the idea of people being repatriated back to Britain. So the book sets out as well this very complicated story, because it did literally take France 20 years to rebuild itself, and as soon as it rebuilt, then lo and behold, the Germans invaded them again. Before we go any further, could you start by telling us where the Argonne Forest is? What the forest is like, sorry, what the forest was like in terms of its topography, terrain and vegetation? So the Argonne Forest is in northeastern France. It's a sort of about 30-mile north-south finger of forest. By, by British standards, we would call it massive forest. It's, say, 20 to 30 miles long and about seven or eight miles wide at its widest. But in French terms, it, it's quite a small forest. But it, it, what is interesting about it is it did form the, the border between France and what was called the Holy Roman Empire. And the French went to a lot of time and trouble to make sure that the Argonne was almost impassable to invading armies. So historically, the Argonne, the, this sort of linear run of forestry, formed part of a very valid border defence network for France. So what is it? It's primarily oak, hornbeam, ashes, silver birch. Now they grow on a, on a subsoil which is called gaze, and gaze is porous, which allows the tree roots to sort of grow round the gaze and draw the water through the gaze. But the gaze was very important to the region because from the gate came pottery and glass, which as far back as Roman times have been a reason why people went to the Argonne was they had the ready supply of wood to make the kilns. And then they, from the gaze, they were able to to get the, I don't quite understand the process, but they were able to get the, the product to enable them to make glass and pottery. So the region was very rich in this sort of history of glass and, uh, and pottery, wood cutting. And it was very, the forest was very dense, very wide, and sort of sits between two, two, two rivers either side of it. But within the forest, there are very, very steep ravines, gullies, that sort of where you're literally walking up and down vertically. And of course, as the war progressed and the war went into the forest, these positions became incredibly difficult to attack, defend. And certainly in the early days, when the digging equipment wasn't very robust, it was certainly incredibly difficult for either side to dig down in because once the war moved from the sort of open campaign of sort of set August, September and early October into the, you know, what became known as positional warfare, where everybody was busy up in the British sector digging away and digging down forever and just worried about the rain. In the Argonne, it's literally impossible for anybody to dig down at all. So they were building up till round about Christmas, heavyweight digging gear arrived, as did explosives. And then they blew their way down into the terrain and were able to give themselves sort of decent cover and protection from what was the primary hazard at the time, which was artillery fire. So how did this uh, terrain and geography shape the nature of the fighting in the forest during the war? Well, we'll start off at the beginning. In in the beginning, what what was German Fifth Army, they they swept down either side of the, because of this thing of the French being able to block forests, there was no wish for anyone to cross the forest because the French had proved in previous wars very adept blocking the forest. So the, the Crown Prince's Fifth Army swept down either side of the forest in the advance of August and September. September, and then they, they got as far down as a place called Revigny, where a huge battle took place. And then that was a sort of, we're talking about the 9th, 10th of September 1914. Now. And of course, that was really the pivotal moment at which the German army was then forced to retreat. So as 
they retreated, they swept back up again either side of the forest and showed no inclination for, for going into the forest. So the first people, not unsurprisingly, to actually enter the forest were the French because they, they were able to find woodcutters, hunters who had experience of the forest. So probably for four or five weeks, the French sat very happily inside the Argonne Forest, waging a sort of guerrilla warfare on the poor old Germans outside who had no concept of what this dark, impenetrable forest was. And every time they chased the French into the forest, the French just disappeared and led them into ambushes. So the first sort of three or four months of the forest was very much a guerrilla warfare because each side was seeking to, to form some sort of line east to west across forest. But until the artillery fire, which took two or three months, leveled down the trees, nobody really, nobody really knew where anybody was because this was fought in this very, very dense forest cover. And it was only when the artillery, when they brought along balloons and aeroplanes, were able to sort of bring down more accurate artillery fire that a, an actual front line, as it were, was cleared through the forest and each side w- was able to see the other. And at some points they were so close together that they, they had crickets rigged up to stop people just lobbing grenades into each other. So the so the original idea was that the German Fourth Army was over the West Forest, German Fifth Army east of the forest, but but then a, a general called Mudra, he was placed in charge for the Fifth Army of the whole forest. So he sought to consolidate the German line across the forest and as much as the French did, and I mean, bear in mind, we're talking about digging trenches up hills and valleys that are almost vertical. So in 1915, the British and the French were on the offensive north and Germany was on the defensive. But in the Argonne, the casualties for both sides were, were appalling. And the Germans agreed they couldn't retreat from the Argonne. Therefore, they would go on to the offensive to try and better the position to, as we saw throughout war, was people were trying to straighten the line, primarily to reduce the amount of manpower that they needed to support the front line. So the Battle of 1915, this was the only place the German army was on the offensive, and they were incredibly successful. And they brought in tactics that would enter into the wider German army. The first great shock to the West was when the offensive started in June and July of 1915, they used gas fired by artillery. Now, this had been a big no-no, as by the Hague Convention, that people wouldn't use uh, poisonous gas. But the, the Germans had had success against the the, the, Al- the French and the Algerians with, with chlorine gas pressurised container, which was allowed. But they, they recruited a German physicist who worked out how to put gas into artillery shells. So the poor old French in 1915, when the Germans launched their only offensive against the Allies in 1915, was the poor old French on the on the wrong end, first of all, of gas being fired from artillery shells. When the Germans advanced, they used these very fit, brave young men who, who we know later became known as stormtroops. And these guys' mission was just to run straight over the first line of the French defences, keep moving against the French, stopping them reinforcing, and then allowing the men who were coming behind them to mop up the trench systems. Well, the poor old French, if you were lucky enough to have survived the artillery and the gas, the Germans then arrived with the flamethrower and sort of torched them out of the trenches. So the Although the German campaign of the sort of spring, summer and early autumn of 1915 was incredibly successful by any measure in the war at that stage, they, they advanced up to two kilometres in places. They, Given the pounding the French took, the French didn't buckle. And I, I am a great admirer of the courage of the Poilu because lit French fought to the last 
man in, in, in a lot of these positions. So it, it was a very interesting war in the forest because as soon as they broke through the front lines, which were, you know, relatively clear by then of trees and obstruction, as soon as they got anywhere within a sort of 500 yards of the front line is the trees. And then you develop this guerrilla warfare where people fighting in and out of the trees, you know, ambushing each other in quite dense cover. So that really was the the, the, the big bit of the campaign was the German advance. And what they're able to do by September 1914 was they'd secured a more or less east-west line across the high ground that negated this huge overmanning of having to go down steep gullies, steep ravines. They were able to consolidate their positions in a line, but across the hilltops that the French had previously occupied and so reduce the manpower required in forest. And as 1915 ended, of course, people assumed that the big push would, you know, the Germans would galvanise themselves or the French would galvanise themselves in 1916 for the spring offensive. But I mean, as we now know, because we're sitting with the wisdom of hindsight, is that the German chief of staff, Falkenheim, he had actually garnered up another plan, Operation Judge, to attack Verdun, which he used the German Fifth Army that were in the forest. So effectively, by the autumn of 1915, the the Argonne Forest became a somewhat quieter backwater of the war, particularly 1916, when the Fifth Army were pushing across to the forts uh, on the hills above Verdun. So what what sort of role did the forest play in the Battle of Verdun? Was it a, um, a, a, a front in which the French were seeking to dislodge the Germans or try and outflank them while they were while they were putting pressure on Verdun to the east of the forest? No, no. The, 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 as I say, what happened this end was is that once Verdun started, is the French were obviously forced to move huge pieces of their army from Champagne, Argonne, over to support the uh, the campaign around Verdun. So the Argonne, I mean, the, the the main German advantage they secured in 1915 was they secured all the high ground across the front which then stopped the French railways from supporting Verdun from the west so by Easter of 1916 the, you know which historians and military enthusiasts will know the only route in and out of Verdun in 1916 was the Voie Sacre which ran up from Bar-le-Duc into the city of Verdun so apart from the Germans dominating all the high ground around the Argonne Forest it, it didn't per se play a part in the Verdun offensive the Verdun offensive was the Germans pouring troops and men into, first of all, the, the eastern side of the Meuse River onto the French forts above Verdun. And then they then attacked the, the French hilltops to, to get themselves within artillery range from the eastern, from the western side of the Meuse. So there were two different campaigns fought there in 1916. So uh, it was effectively a backer, of course, until the, the launching of the, the joint British offensive on the Somme River in July 1916. So what happened in the forest uh, from the Battle of Verdun up to when the Americans took over the sector in 1918? Well, what, what happened in the forest is, uh, as I said earlier, it was a war of many firsts because it, it certainly appears to have been, and this goes back even to 1914, was it the forest became a war of mines because even back in 1914, a, a French uh, engineering officer, after numerous assaults on a, on a sort of German hilltop position, watching hundreds of men be killed, he'd said, well, I'll save you a lot of time. What I'll do is I'll dig in underneath it and I'll blow them up. And because of this sort of gaze soil that is quite quite, once you get quite deep down into it, it's quite rigid and doesn't need supporting like we see the traditional British films about, you know, tunnelling in the Somme and Ypres and places like this. Because this was a rock formation, they were actually able to go down with very little support. So in 1916-1917, the war in the forest was primarily one of mining, where people, the Germans or the French, sought to blow one or the other. 
side off the top of a hill to either remove that position from overlooking them or to capture it themselves so that they could overlook the Germany. So the war from 16 to the summer of 1918 was effectively known in the Argonne Forest as the War of Mine. Is there anywhere in the Argonne that really demonstrates this sort of type of warfare that existed during this? Well, yeah, there's a, there's a place, it's called, it's called the Bout de Vauquois, it's French thing. So this was an, a, a rather nice sort of hilltop town where everybody farmed all, you know, wine and all sorts of fruit and vegetables on the hillsides around it. And because it dominated the, the, the sort of battle front, it was heavily fought over by the French and the Germans. And then each side occupied either side of the Bout de Vauquois, and they began almost quite quickly to dig underneath each other and the size of the mines there were simply eye-watering and in, the Germans started uh, in, the, in, the, in the sort of German way. They, they, well, two things happened in Vauquois. One was the Germans dug in there in a serious way and they could hide something like 20,000 men in Vauquois so whenever the French sort of opened up massive artillery campaigns along the general front, the Germans could sort of move all their troops I- I- into the sort of chambers under Vauquois and shelter them French artillery fire. So I'm not quite clear when, but sort of sometime in 1915-16, the neither side, despite these huge, huge mine blasts, was able to penetrate the other side. So what the Germans did in their way was they then dug right down to the bottom of the hill, you know, several hundred meters, and then drove several tunnels across the hill. And their aim was just to blow the hill up altogether and get rid of it. Well, sort of rather fortunately for the French, you know, the, the, the sort of war came to a, to an end just as the uh, as the Germans were sort of actually getting there. But what was what was really interesting was it required so much explosive to blow up the hill. The Germans, having dug these tunnels, then didn't have enough explosive to blow up the hill. So today, I have to say, I think it's one of the best sites on the Western Front. First of all, you can arrive, you know, any day of the week in daylight hours, you can park there, you walk up on the top and you're on the French side and there is just either side of you, there are six or seven absolutely huge craters, which when you see someone in the bottom of them, you think, oh my goodness, what was that like as explosion? And you cross on a footpath and you go to the other side, the German side, northern side, and you, you notice straight away that their, their defence work is much more rigid, rigid. It's all cast in concrete. But if you go there on a Sunday morning in the summer, you can do a tour of both sides. And I have to say, I've found that one of the most frightening experiences on the Western Front. You put on a helmet, I'm sure in Britain you wouldn't be allowed to go down there, but with a, with a local guide, you first of all go down the German German side, you go down and down and down, down, down. You're really in these mine shafts, and the little electric lights are flickering, and you've got your little light on your helmet, and and then you you come back up again, and then you go down on the French side, and I think it is a, a very good experience, and I think it really shows you you know courage of the tunnelers who did spend their life underground tunneling under each other. So that is a place where you can see the war of mines, see the size of the mine craters, and then you can go down in the tunnels and see what must have been the appalling conditions that the tunnel has worked. So we moved to the summer of 1918. Now, the Americans are obviously enter the war in 1917 and the American expeditionary force uh, ends up taking over the Argonne Forest from the French. Why were they given... Why, sorry, why were the Americans given this sector by the French? Well, it, it's it's a sort of like... Nothing about the First World War is, you know, when one studies it, nothing is quite as we ever, we ever thought it was. So America arrived uh, in the war in April 1917, but their army was as... I, I don't want to criticise my own country, 
country, but their army was as small and as hopelessly equipped as the British army was. That's to say the American army was about 250,000 men, consisting of about 150,000 regulars and 100,000 reservists. And despite the fact the war in Europe had been going on for three years, they weren't equipped for, for the type of warfare that was going to, that was taking place in Europe at that time. So the Americans arrived and, of course, they were at the behest of the British. The British were running the Atlantic Convoys. So the British, in our sort of colonial empire-ish way, sort of naturally assumed that we would garner the Americans, we would take France, we would garner them under our wing, and then we would put them under British command. And, of course, when they arrived in France, the French rather fancied their chances, and they thought, well, we should charge of the Americans and that they should fight with us. And Pershing, he, he hadn't had a particularly tight brief from President Wilson about what the aim of the American army were. He'd just been sort of told we'll get out to France and see what's going on. Well, as Wilson got more mixed up in the war, he probably sort of took a look took a look at Louis George and at Clemenceau in France and thought, I don't particularly like the look of this. I don't want us to be subsidiary to anybody. I don't want to be sitting, because now we're in the war, we're going to win. And I certainly don't want to be sitting in an antechamber, you know, while everybody else is at the top table sorting out the, uh, sorting out the, the proceeds of winning the war. So he applied pressure to Persia to find a sector of the front, didn't care where it was, find a sector front, get your army there and fight the war under American command. So Pershing had identified Lorraine as a sector where he might be able to put his army. And that was where things were moving. And the American army was coming in on the port. They built five ports on the, on the west coast of France. They built a railway line. The, the story of what's called service of supply is one of the great American stories of war. From a standing start, brought their men over. They brought. They had to bring everything with them. They're food, you name it, they brought it with them because there was no spare capacity in France or Britain for anything for us to provide the Americans. So the Americans came over and initially they were trained in sort of quiet sectors of the front by the by the British and the Americans. And meanwhile, you've got Pershing lobbying for a piece of the front for himself. Well, then exactly what Pershing dreaded, but the British and the French were seeking quite happy about, was the great German offensive started in March 1918. And for better or for worse, Pershing was forced to throw the American expeditionary forces lot in with the British and the French. Now, of course, this actually suited Haig and Foch and uh, Petain quite well because, it, you know, de facto, the American army was now in the British army, in the French army, and was subject to their command. Now, things came to a head early in August 1918 at an awful battle at a place called Fismet, which is in the Champagne region. And one of the sort of more bloodthirsty French generals gave to the 28th American division to go and hold this small town of Fismeti, Fismet, which was surrounded on three sides by hills and one side on a river. He, he sent in, I think it was 360 Americans, and all the American commanders said this is a suicide mission. And as was the way of generals of those days, the general said, you know, this is the war, you must get used to this sending men to their death. So the 28th Division crossed into Fismet and the Germans gave it to them big time. Yeah, they rained artillery fire, gas fire down on them, and then the dreaded stormtroopers appeared with gas. And I think something like 20 out of two to 300 Americans survived by swimming back across the river. Well, when Pershing got to hear that his men had been so appallingly sacrificed, he, not unsurprisingly, had an extremely bad turn and said, never again would Americans 
American troops be commanded and put in a position like that other than by an American commander. So meanwhile, now the dynamics of the whole campaign across the, the, the front are changing because the Germans have sort of shot their bolt in the spring offensive. They've gained a huge amount of ground, but they've lost too many men. They've got the same problems they had in 1914. They can't haul their artillery over the decimated battlefields. The troops at the front are isolated. The Allies are reorganising. And thanks to the Although the casualties on British, the German and the French side were appalling, what the Allies, the British and the French had that the Germans didn't have was they had American reinforcements. So they could replace man for man to, I mean, America now will land 250, 300,000 men a month. So clearly the, the whole campaign is altered now. So on the so Foch came up, he was the sort of generalissimo of the French and the British and the American army. Now, he had a plan that the Americans would support French in a push to the west towards Metz, which was the big rail hub that controlled access to the sector that we don't tend to hear a lot about because after 1914, it's quite quiet. And that is the sector that ran from Verdun down Swiss border. But nevertheless, a lot of soldiers down there, a lot of railway trains coming in and out. So he can up a American support of a French push to the West. Now, Pershing wasn't particularly keen on this. He, he, he thought, you know, we're being subsumed into a, into a minor role in the war. On the 30th of August, Foch changed his mind again and said that uh, the Americans should take part in, in a different offensive to the North, supporting the French. And as one read is that Foch and Pershing fell out in a huge way and were sort of stood there screaming at each other and Foch left with uh, no agreement about where and what the Americans were going to do. So Pétain, who was the commander of the French army, he brokered a new deal, which in some ways was part of the old. First of all, the Americans had, had fought in, you know, they'd fought with great vigour and they'd learned a lot of lessons fighting with the French and the British in 19, during the spring offensive, but they hadn't fought a campaign as the American army. So what was agreed was that they would take out a big bulge south of Verdun in a place called the San Mikhail Salient. There would be a, a primarily an American operation there to remove the bulge from the line, and they would be supported by French artillery. And that was where the original American plan was. They would take out the Meuse uh, San Mikhail Salient, and then they would push over to the east towards Metz. Now what uh, Pétain broke was that he would would give them the sector from the, the French 4th Army across to the city of Verdun. So on the, the western boundary would be the Argonne, would be the Argonne Forest, and the eastern boundary would be the Meuse River. But this was quite a big ask, because first of all, the Americans were fighting quite further south. They, they were at least 20, 30 miles further south. So in a matter of three weeks, the Americans would have to move a million men from the Samuel Salient up to the Argonne Forest. Now, if there's nothing you can't give the Americans, it's their ability to do things. Now, one of the, 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 the sort of star of this is one of the stars of the Second World War, a, a very efficient staff officer who, who was known as Bill Marshall, and people who are historians might well think, I know that name. Well, they do, because he was the American supreme planner in World War II, and then he led the Marshall plan for the recovery of Europe after the Second World War. So Pershing said to the head of planning, I want you to produce a plan to move my army of a million men from 
down there to up there and I want it to be done in about two weeks. So poor old Marshall found himself this. He put together two sides of A4 and oddly enough, Pershing said, that's a really good idea. Crack on with it. So incredibly, this million plus army was moved by the French. They, they did provide the vehicles. And so America, out of no particular knowledge, expertise, whatever, got their sector because, as I say, they didn't care where their sector was. They wanted a sector where they would be in charge. So I think sometime in the in the second week of September, what was called the first American army was officially born and they worked to bring up all the men, all the equipment, all the artillery to the front. But of course, this had to be done in great secrecy. So at the same time, the Americans conjured up another army called the Second American Army. Now that army would run a lesser campaign as to keep the Germans believing that the American thrust would be going out towards Metz, but the primary American thrust. So all of the soldiers, it's an incredible feat of logistics. The American army was moved entirely at night. They were hidden at night. There was any Americans who went into the front line had to be French speakers. They had to wear French uniforms in case they were snatched by German trench raiding parties. So literally nobody knew that the Americans would be taking over this sector of the front. So in this wonderful logistics plan, the French army on the night of the 25th of September was spirited away. And after about midnight, the American army was spirited in. And at something like two or three o'clock in the morning, the, the on the 26th of September, the American artillery, it, it, it's a very tight sector, this. It's about 20 miles wide, but it had a million and a quarter men put in it. I mean, these were the types of numbers that any French or British general would dream of. And so began the great Meurs-Argonne offensive. And how, how, how did that unfold in the remaining months of 1918? Well, the book concentrates on, on the Argonne Forest. So the Argonne Forest on the left, now this is one of these sort of very quirky bits of American history that certainly doesn't sit comfortably with people these days. In when, when America came into the war, they had two things. They had a draft, which was everybody over 18 and under 45 had to register to, to you know, to, to be possibly drafted into the forces. And then the second thing they did was volunteers. Now, people who volunteered in America, were an awful lot of African-Americans volunteered, and they, they assumed that they would be going in to do the fighting and improve their chances and uh, prospects in America after the war. But then what happened in America was that the African-Americans were primarily recruited into these huge, I think there was something like 400,000 were recruited into the labor battalions, which built the railways, built the bridges, built everything, did all the sort of manual work in conditions that one has to say were not much better than they were in America. But they did raise two fighting divisions, which was the 92nd and the 93rd. Now, Pershing was called Black Jack Pershing because he, he had a great affinity with African-American. He had fought in the Wild West with African-Americans. He'd been in the Philippine, uh, sorry, the Cuba campaign with African-Americans. He'd been down on the Mexican border with African-Americans. But people think it was political pressure from um, President Wilson was that the army should be an all-white army. So given this problem that he had two black divisions, what was he going to do with them? So what he did is he gave them to a French general called Henri Guru, who my great uncle was translator and driver for. And he gave these two divisions for gurus to guru in the fourth army, French fourth army. So they wore American uniforms, but everything else, their helmets, their rifles, their ammunition, everything was French issued. So next to the Argonne Forest in the French sector was the 92nd American division, and they were charged with heading north to a place of Beneville. Across the forest was spread the American 77th division, who were known as the Liberty division because they primarily came from New York. And then I don't talk in detail 
tell because it's a very big campaign and you know, it was fought in all sorts of places. But from the forest, from the eastern side of the forest to the River Meuse was something like another 20 American divisions all lined up and were all white divisions. And these were the people that took part. So my book concentrates really on, on the 77th division. And this sort of poison, I, I mean, in some ways I feel that Pétain gave the Americans this sector as a sort of poison chalice, as if to say, well, you know, we haven't made any progress here for three years. And if you think you're better than us, well, here's your opportunity. So I think America was to a degree because these were incredibly well built. I mean, the, the, the Americans had to fight their way through four lines of huge German defences that they'd spent years and years building. So I think that the French somewhat cynically gave the Americans this sector because they knew how well it was defended and that they'd made so little progress themselves over the previous four years on it that they probably rather hoped that the Americans would come unstuck on it. But you know, given, the, as I said, this huge amount of manpower that the Americans had, that they actually were able to slowly but surely smash their way through. And so just as the Germans and the French had all run into this problem in 1914, 1915, once you got through the cleared front lines, you, you got into this sort of guerrilla warfare. So the Americans made quite good progress initially, break through the German trenching system, because it wasn't as well manned as it had been earlier in the war. You, you know, by this time, German reinforcements were being called up to the northern sectors where the British and the French were on, on the march. So, But once the, the Americans broke through the first line, they then entered this very problem. The French and the Germans, that is, this is guerrilla warfare. This is up close, personal. People are behind you. They're in front of you. They're at the side of you. They're down tunnels. And the Americans fought a very, very bitter pain force. I think it was about four weeks and it was yard by yard through this forest and the Germans were everywhere And during this offensive, I mean, probably one of the greatest American actions of all time and probably one of the greatest military actions of all time was fought. And it's um, a a man who was an unassuming Boston lawyer. He had, uh, I think he was a volunteer. He was assigned to the 77th Division and he was the complete opposite of the sort of rather bolder, more brassy American officers and men of of New York who who were in the um, the 77th. He's a very quiet man, but during the, the, the campaign in Champagne before the Meurs-Argonne offensive, he'd actually proved to be a very resilient officer and quite strange at the time. He was very, very close to the men. Now, this was a time when officers and men kept themselves quite far apart. But Whittlesey earned a reputation as a man who was very close to the men. He was very considerate of the men and he didn't ask them to do anything he wouldn't do himself. So during this advance, Whittlesey went forward to a place ominously called um, dead woman, uh, the, the hill of the dead woman, and he found himself cut off, and he was cut off two or three days in some quite appalling conditions, but given his resoluteness as a leader, he, he rallied the men and, and they, they held firm and were eventually relieved, and one of the people who came to relieve them received the Congressional Medal of Honour. Now, now um, Whittlesey went back that night, I think this is round about 1st or the 2nd of October 1918, and said they were out of ammunition, the men were in very poor condition, they did didn't have proper wire cutting, they didn't have this, they didn't have that. And then the commander of the 77th Division told him, I'm not interested in this, Whittlesey, get your men, march forward and go to a place called Charlevoix Mill, where you will dig in, you will not worry about your flanks, your flanks will be on one side, they'll be picked up by the French 4th Army, and on the other side, they'll be picked up by other members of the 77th Division. So Whittlesey set 
set off with, think, about 150, 200 men. And he found his way through the German lines. He crossed down over Parade Square and then came up this very, very steep slope. And that was his position he'd been told to get to. So he got there, he dug the men in. They did look for where the support was either side and didn't find any. Now, later on, uh, another man called McMurty appeared with a few more men. And then the following day, uh, another American officer uh, called Holderman appeared with some more men. It, it's slightly difficult to ascertain the exact number, but somewhere between six and 700 men had managed to get through the German lines and establish themselves on a slope below the Beneville Road. And their orders were to sit there and wait reinforcements. Well, it didn't, you know, the Germans are great soldiers. And of course, it didn't realize, take them long to realize that there's quite large American penetration had taken place. And this unbelievable siege took place over from the 3rd to the night of the 7th of October 1918. And it is just one of the greatest sort of stories of, uh, of, a, of military endeavour ever, because Whittlesey somehow, despite 50% of the men being killed and injured and captured, Whittlesey held out. And um, when they got through the German lines, there was, there was a newspaper at the headquarters of the 77th Division, and he was sending back a report to America. And, and he said, there's a unit's got out in front, and they're trying to get up to them. And the man in America sent back and said, tell me about the Lost Battalion. And this is, hence Whittlesey's men became known as the Lost Battalion. And this story just leapt into the American newspapers. And for five days in America, the public followed the, uh, the, you know, the, the endeavours of the rest of the 77th Division to try and relieve the, 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 and it was, the position was known as the pocket. And it's a wonderful, wonderful story. And it is one of the great stories of the Meuse-Argonne offensive is the Lost Battalion. And on the, on the night of the 7th of October, they were relieved and the scenes that greeted the relievers were, were absolutely awful. I mean, the men, there was, there was, you know, they hadn't had anything to eat or drink for days, but it was a, a token of the leadership of Whittlesey, McMurty and Holderman that despite, interesting enough, Whittlesey wasn't injured, but Holderman and McMurty were, in, uh, were injured several times each, but they held and they held the position. And poor old Whittlesey, who's this sort of quiet, unassumed Bostonian lawyer, is suddenly put there up on the Pantheon with Colonel Custer and David Crockett and Bowie and, you know, American Civil War leaders, a, a role for which he was total pair. Now, the other sort of very famous incident that took place this was as part of the relief of the Lost Battalion, the American 82nd Division, who hadn't been committed in the first stage of the offensive, they were brought up around the uh, eastern edge of the forest to a small village called Chateau Sherry, and their job was to dislodge the Germans there and, as it were, envelop from the rear the Germans who were laying siege to the pocket. Now, there was some very bitter fighting took place at Chateau Sherry, and uh, and one of these sort of quirky historical characters sort of popped out of the woodwork here. So the Americans were lured to a very nasty trap out in open ground where the Germans were sat on the hill the way around the edge, waiting Americans to break out in the open, and they did literally wipe them out. Now, a small group under a sergeant called, I think he was called Endelman, managed to sort of sneak through the German lines, and there was a firefight with the German. Endelman's in, and a very odd man took over, a man called Alvin York, who had been a pacifist and uh, a, a sort of conscientious objector and very devoutly religious man, but he had reconciled himself to the fact that he, he would have to fight. So York suddenly finds himself in charge of this patrol of about seven or eight men. And then this other incredible story unfolds is York almost single-handedly kills something like 30 or 40 Germans using his Tennessee backwoodsman marksman skills. And then with the help of these other men, he captures something like 140 Germans. And he was awarded 
awarded the the Medal of Honor. And this is again one of the you know the more famous incidents of the Argonne Forest campaign. So within literally four or five miles of each other, the, the two of the most famous actions of the war, the Lost Battalion and Sergeant York were fought. And I think Lost Battalion there were seven medals of honors. It was the most it was the most Medal of Honor won for a single action in the war. And the Medal of Honor was won by Alvin York for his uh, killing the Germans and capturing 140 of them at Chateau Sherry. Uh, and then the, that really, it was the 82nd, broke the back of the Germans because the Germans realised they'd encircled and they retreated further. Uh, they were retreating now to the sort of line that most British listeners will be more familiar with, which is the Hindenburg line, which is the long line of defence the Germans had built all the way from sort of Belgium down to the Swiss border. So the 82nd did effectively enable the relief of, of the Lost Battalion to take place. And then the 77th carried on up to uh, a place, there, there were two towns, one called Saint-Juven, Saint Saint and the, the other one is a place called Grand Pre. And that was the last act fought by the uh, 77th Division, because by then they had something like a third of the men casualties. They'd been, I think they'd been campaigning then for six weeks without stop. And so the 70, uh, the 77th were relieved then by the 78th. So a unit that through the course of the campaign, I think they had a third of their men killed and injured. But given that the French had had no great success for a number of years. I, I, I do, it, the, the, the American campaign was incredibly successful considering they weren't a very experienced army. They learned the hard way and they did learn the hard way. They, 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 they really, you know, had no comprehension of, you know, Pershing, when he'd watched the British and the French train, he thought that we were too attached to our trenches and that all Americans should be out in the front fighting with rifles and bayonets. Well, of course, you you know, this this was something that the French and the British approved of destruction didn't work, and he he was determined the Americans would learn it the hard way. So across the sector from the Argonne Forest to Verdun, I mean, Americans will it cut thousands by these tactics of just rushing at Germans with you know rifles and bayonets and finding that that wasn't the way that you were going to win this sort of warfare. So the, the, the pocket was relieved. Alvin York wrote himself in, in, into history. And then we sort of arrived, the war sort of ended quite quickly on, on the 11th of November. But of course, we all know that the 11th of November, I mean, you know, men were killed in huge numbers on the 11th. And, you know, there is a token British, Canadian, American and French person who are marked as the, the last men killed of the war. Although obviously countless thousands of men continue to die of their injuries for day, weeks, uh, and years after the war. And then my book moves on to this sort of area I talked about earlier. Now, this is quite an interesting it because Americans don't have war diaries like Britain do. So it's quite difficult to sort of get into what American units did because you tend to have to read broader narratives. Now, at the end of the war, a lot of the units were left France, so they wrote their own history. So things like the 82nd Division, the 77th Division go online, you read their histories. But these are histories written by themselves where there are good and bad parts of them, but they're written. Now, the African-American units didn't benefit from any of this sort of own diary diary writing. So there's a unit called the 805th. Now, when it became apparent that most African-Americans were being subsumed into the Labour battalions, the American political, African-American political groups lobbied quite hard that this wasn't good enough, and they expected African-Americans to fight. So what Wilson allowed was a series of pioneer infantry units called the 8s to exist. Now, the 805th is the only one that wrote a diary. But the 805th was of interest to me, because the 805th, they arrived in October of 1918 in a small village at the southern end of the Argonne Forest. They spent about six weeks 
in the campaign, supporting the American army, building railroads, building roads, doing all the sort of thankless stuff like that. But because they were some of the last in um, France, that meant they wouldn't certainly be the first going home. So the 805th wrote a diary. And it is very interesting because they were at charge clearing the Argonne Forest. And it's a very interesting read because it just tells you what awful thankless work it was clearing the battlefield. So there obviously were a lot of German booby traps. They, they lost quite a few men on the booby traps. They lost a lot of men just because the inherently large piles of explosives are, you know, unstable. But also, these were the men who really started this. I mean, although the Americans had a lot of problem flu, most of the 805th casualties were from the flu. And, you know, these men died in some pretty appalling conditions. The lucky ones lived in American, sorry, German or French shelters, but most of them tent out in the forest and all around the edges of the forest, clearing up the weapons, clearing up the barbed wire, clearing up the tanks, moving. And all this was done, brute manual labour. Um, so we, we then sort of see this huge clearing effort. And then, of course, Britain, we, we'd had this wonderful man called Fabian Ware. Now, back in 1914, he was a volunteer ambulance driver. And while they were between missions, he'd started seeing this problem with the dead. Now, technically, the dead of the war belonged to the French government, but they proved as inept as everybody did at what to do with the dead people. So Fabian Ware had started recording where he saw all these graves. And, and then in 1915, he, he had served in South Africa. A general who knew him from South Africa said, I, I think I've got a job for you. And he started up the Gra Graves Registration Service, you know, started to properly catalogue the British dead. And he started to lobby because in 1915, the, you can imagine when the, when the summer came in 1915, the stink of the dead who primarily had been frozen in the ground became appalling. And the French wanted to cremate everybody. And at this point, the Brit I mean, the French army wasn't, it was a conscript army, but the British army was a volunteer army. And Fabian Ware lobbied the British government, lobbied the French government and said he didn't think it was a fitting end for a British serviceman or Canadian or Australian who were volunteers to end up being cremated. So he, he set out the sort of rules for the war, which were where possible, men would be given a single grave and where not possible, they'd be given a, a mass grave. And in 1916, he'd gone back to Britain. So when the war ended, Fabian Ware was particularly well equipped with what was then called the uh, Imperial War Graves Commission. They were ready and they started off on their cemeteries. Uh, and they I, I think they started the first one around Etat, which was the big British base camps, because it's all very well having drawing pictures and diagrams of what a cemetery is going to look like. But when you when you work out how long it's going to take you to dig one grave, how long will it take to dig a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand graves? What will be the impact of the weather on the stones and the flowers? So we were very well prepared. But of course, everyone was governed in January 1919. The French government forbid the removing of the dead front because they didn't want France becoming some vast dystopian mass of bodies moving all over the place. Because in those days, there was no means of freezing bodies or anything like that. So quite rightly, the French didn't want them all moving around. And quite rightly, they saw it be quite a big health hazard. So what they did allow was what they what they euphemistically called sort of congregation or assemblies. So bodies could be moved from people's back doors, farmyards, farmlands to congregations. And these were what was to become the cemeteries. And these had to be by a road head, near a rail head, somewhere where they could easily, bodies could be brought to and bodies could be taken away from. And so began this huge operation. I mean, France was the unwitting custodian of something like four million dead, of whom probably about a million didn't exist because the poor men had been blown to pieces. But there were certainly about three million men who were, who were tangible bodies. So this huge operation began from Newport in Belgium all the way down the Swiss border, which was moving the men into these centralised areas. Now, the Germans didn't have a, have a 
a shout list. They weren't allowed to send any bodies back to Germany. They had to help clear up the battlefield and they had to help dig up the dead. And they weren't allowed very particularly attractive looking cemeteries. The French, because they were absolutely busted, only had a, had a sort of basic cemetery with wooden crosses. But the British went into overdrive because Fabian Ware had garnered the political support. He'd garnered huge amounts of money and it was agreed with the then empire, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, India. They would pay on a pro rata basis for the number of their men that, that were in the cemetery. And so this huge operation in the Meurs-Argonne area focused around a, a cemetery called Romagna, which had been in the Battle of Verdun. It had been a German cemetery for their casualties. And then the Americans had used it as a battlefield cemetery. And then now it was agreed that this would be the cemetery for everybody killed in the Meurs-Argonne area and the San Mihail offensive. And the American bodies were, were, were brought back up to here. And America became rather envious of the British sort of situation when they saw all these wonderful graves and you know Kipling who was part of the Imperial War Graves Commission called it the second building of the pyramids and Pershing sort of got caught up in the Brit wanting something much better much more American and he wanted to keep the bodies in France but without spending too long on it a huge lobby came in America to bring the men home and this then was put out to ballot then of course the French who controlled the bodies they were forced to go to ballot themselves so although the cemeteries kept on being built all along the front behind the scenes where there's these huge political movements to, to take men home and right at the 11th hour there, there was a, a bill put in parliament to stop the building of the British cemeteries and that the British should be brought home well I don't think the treasury were that keen on that because you know the, the, the first of all you know how would you take people back to Canada New Zealand India Africa it just didn't bear thinking about but we had already invested huge amounts of capital in the cemetery so Britain stuck with the original plan which was the men would be left in France in the Dardanelles in East Africa in Mesopotamia in Palestine where they had fallen but about half the Americans went home and difficult to say because the French as always had two systems running if you were killed at the front you stayed at the front but if you died in a hospital attached to the front or you died in a hospital in Biarritz or Marseille of your injuries six months later your family could go and claim your body so through the course of the war huge numbers of French were actually buried in their local cemeteries because they didn't die at the front they, they died in, in hospitals all over France but something rather macabre had France is the people who died at front who couldn't be removed because that was the order there was this sort of grave digging service broke out and a black market where you could if you knew someone in a Paris cafe and said yeah my son was killed at Verdun and we believe he, he's buried at this place these people would go and dig up the bodies and bring them back for you. Now, this went on throughout war and was particularly grisly. Now, there were all sorts of people involved in this operation. There were people genuinely seeking to help grieving families, and there were complete charlatans. So what arrived in a box was anybody's guess. In the box might be your son or your husband. In the box might be half of your son, half of your husband. In the box might be a mixture of your son, someone else's husband, and someone else's brother. And in the worst case, all the box had in it was rocks that weighed approximately what a person did. So gathering the numbers of how many French people were
were really buried is much more difficult. But it looks as though about a quarter of a million French were removed from the front and buried in family cemeteries all, all across France. And probably about half a million French servicemen are, are in the cemeteries that, that run up and down the front. And then parallel with this is the poor old French then had to rebuild front. Now, there was huge pressure from the French government to rebuild the British sector and part of the French sector, because this is where something like a quarter of French tax revenues had come from before the war. So this was farming land, mining land, cities that were famous for taking part in some industrial process. So the, the, the French had designated the, 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 the front into, into three different zones. Uh, I think there were red, green and yellow, and the red was the most polluted. But huge pressure was mounted on the French government to clear the, 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 the British sector. So when people go back to France, and apart from the cemeteries, people are usually quite disappointed because they, 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 they go there expecting to see lots of trenches and lots of stuff. Well, in the British sector, hardly anything exists because the British sector was prime industrial, prime agricultural land, prime land for residency. So practically all the British sector w- was cleared away. When you get down to Champagne, there, there's quite a lot of French stuff around there. But the French government's rule of thumb was if it, if it had commercial value, it was commercial. If, as was the case with the Argonne Forest and Verdun, there was no commercial value, then it would be left to forest. Now, the Argonne was originally forest anyway. Now, building another forest turned out to be easier said than done, because first of all, they had to remove all the trees that were damaged by shrapnel, by gas. And then, of course, what happens is, is you know, a bit of a shock to people, is forests don't actually grow naturally. What grows naturally is bramble bushes. So all across the front sector in the Argonne and across the Verdun, just brambles grew. And the veterans were up in arms saying they couldn't visit their trenches because they were all full of brambles. So this rather incredible French, he, he said, well, what we can do is, because there was also a lack of topsoil, he said, well, what we can do is we can plant uh, pine trees because they don't need the topsoil. They'll grow quite quickly. Now, these initially were, were regarded with some scepticism, but then actually, after about 10 years, these pines produced an effect that was known as the cathedral effect. And what it did is the pine trees grew, they stopped the sun coming on the ground, it killed off all the vegetation, it allowed all the trenches to reappear, and the French veterans could walk into these forests, and it is uh, and it is like, I mean, they're still there now, it is like being in a cathedral. You just get this very, very gentle, dappled light coming down through the pine trees into no man's land and on onto the trenches. And at least planting the pine trees then enabled them to start the longer-term programme, planting back the, the, the hardwoods, uh, the oaks, the beans, and all, horn beams, ash, uh, silver birches, all the things that have been lost in the war. But actually, people got quite attached to these pine trees, so they were left, for the most part, in Verdun and in the Argonne Forest over the trench because they did enable this very lovely dappled light to, to drop down on the trenches. Now, rather sadly, all across Verdun and the Argonne Forest, now, there's this awful beetle that started eating up pine trees. And very, very sadly, all of these pines are being chopped down now. I mean, as, a, as an amount of trees in the Argonne Forest, they're probably less than 10%. But unfortunately, they are over all the trench system. So when I was, I, I was out there in November, and because this beetle is just chewing its way through these pine forests, the French uh, office of forest, the forestry office are busy cutting them all down. So a little bit sadly at the moment, a lot of the wonderful sites in the Argonne, they're not disappearing, but these wonderful pine trees are going because they're being chopped down to stop this disease spreading. 
So rather sadly, I mean, I've been in the Argonne for seven years now. I know stuff will grow again and it, it will grow quite quickly. But certainly for the next two or three years, there will be this sort of bereftness of trees. But in some ways, that's also quite interesting. I think it was in 1989, there was a, a hurricane hit France called Lothgar and it cut a bit like the, you know, the, I think we had one that I don't know, I can't remember now whether ours was 87 or 89 and we had the hurricane in Britain. Now what Lothgar did is it cleared huge sections of the forest of trees in this hurricane and people could actually see what the battlefield looked like because the trees had obscured the battlefield. So although I'm saddened to see all the pine trees coming down, particularly around the big sites, actually it is quite interesting because it's back to looking like it looked at the end of the First World War, which is the trenches and tree stumps. So there's, I, I can't recommend enough to go down there. It has, we, we talked earlier about the Butte de Vauquois. There's a place called Mandamassige, which technically isn't Argonne. It, it's the uh, Champagne campaign. It's a hilltop position. It's being bought by a group of enthusiasts who've used the old aerial photographs and have dug the trenches exactly as they were in 1914 to 1918. And interestingly enough, my my great uncle was at Mandamas Age as well, is they have dug these trenches and it is chalk and you stand in these trenches and everything is as it was during the war and there's French artillery ranges nearby and it can be quite sort of ominous feeling some days if you're in these trenches and you hear this rumble of artillery fire all around in the French ranges. Now when you see them, you'll recognise them because they're constantly used on British television as a backdrop for TV programmes uh, so as people sort of see what trenches are like. There's another Another place called Valley Moreau, which is an old German rest camp, which I work at and I'm a tour guide at, and that has rebuilt a German third line rest camp. I mean, listeners will probably be aware that you didn't spend all your life in the trenches. You were generally in the front line for five to 10 days, and then you went to a rest area, and then you came into the support trenches. So the Germans were exactly the same, except because they believed they'd advanced the German border, their rest camps were quite something. And, and if you go to the uh, Valley Moreau, you see huge steam house, you see a cinema, you see shops, you know, they made themselves home for home in the area. There's another place called the Ravine de Genie, which is a French sort of rest camp. Now, this is a place where all the trees are being cut down at the moment, but that's got an awful lot to see there. Haute that is the old front line, which you can stand in no man's land. And on one side of you, you have the French trenches and on the other side, the German trenches. Now, that was somewhere where the dappled light was rather wonderful. Now, as I left in November, they were starting to cut down the uh, pine trees there. But even if they go, you'll still be able to stand in no man's land uh, and look either way. And then also Argonne has two wonderful museums. One's called Romania 1418, which is run by a, a, a Dutchman called Jean Paul Vries. That is one of the best museums on the Western Front. You can go in there, you can pick everything up, you can look at everything, you can ask him any questions. And there's another museum. The, the 1418 is in a village called Romania, which is where the American cemetery is. And there's another museum called, it's just changed its name. It's called 1418 Mers Argonne now, and that is in the American sector, and uh, and that museum has primarily American artefacts. So it is a place where one can happily spend a day, 
two days, three days. There's an awful lot to see there. And it is only sort of 30 miles away from Verdun. So most people tend to visit the Argonne and visit Verdun as well, because Verdun had no economic value after the war. So the French government brought most of it in under public ownership. And the top of Verdun is covered in the pine forests. Now, again, they've got the same problem at the moment. They're busy chopping down the trees. But again, it does give you this feel of the war because you're now looking from trenches at nothing but tree stumps. So just because the trees are cut down, don't feel you shouldn't go there because it's still very, very interesting to see. And lastly, this year is the centenary of the poppy. Now, like most people, I've probably been sort of under the illusion that the British are the owners of the poppy. Well, I wish to crush this straight away. We are not the owners of the poppy. The poppy belong. The, the provenance of the poppy is a wonderful, somewhat eccentric French woman called Madame Anna Gouria. Now, Madame Gouria, she was a great French do-gooder. And when the war started, she set up work for widows and orphans of French soldiers. And she crossed over the Atlantic every summer where she toured America dressing up as theatrical French characters, Marie Antoinette, um, all sorts of people, who uh, Joan of Arc. She, and what she did is she raised funds. Now, because America was new, she couldn't sort of talk about how awful the war was. All she could do was do these sort of French historic tableau and collect money. So then in the winter, she went back to France where she gave the money to these people and they made things. Now, she built up a great contact network of contacts in America. Now, when she arrived in American town, they used to sell poppies to sort of provide, you know, advertising, interest in Madame Gurian being there. So in America, the poppy became quite widely accepted as a sort of token of the war. Now, when the war ended, she sort of went into overdrive and she got the poppy initially accepted by the American Legion as its sort of memorial for the war. But this wasn't quite straightforward because the Americans weren't that happy about poppy because poppy's not uh, an indigenous plant of America. America. And America from the Civil War had a long-standing relationship with Daisy. So it wasn't an easy battle, but she, she did get the, the poppy accepted. Now, there was another American who, whose name was Moina Michelle. Now, she also came up pop, but as one would say, her and she lobbied for the American Legion to take on the poppy as an emblem. But her sort of slight undoing was she patented her poppy. So if it went into mass production, somebody somewhere was going to have to square with her because she would be owed money because she patented. Whereas Madame Gouria, she didn't patent it. So we sort of fast forward now to 19, the summer of 1921. Now, it's not quite what happened here, but Madame Gouria arrived in Britain. Now, at this point, you know, the war was over. We, we, we had the unknown soldier. We, we had the um, cenotaph. So public memorial was quite high up. Now, hey, he had been ennobled, but he was now Earl. And he'd been put in charge of a fund for trying to look after disabled, blinded veterans of the war. But they essentially had no money. Money. The, the, the British Legion and the Earl Hague appeal had only just started. They had no money. Now, it's not very clear, but Gurin arrived in and she must have met someone, either Lloyd George, Hague, the King. She had huge contacts. She met one of them. And what she agreed was that she would bankroll Earl Hague for the first poppy collection in 1921. Now, we know this is serious because the British government sent her people to France to check that she was trustworthy and she could deliver these poppies. So I think she arranged for something like 10,000 poppies to be sold 
uh, on and around the 11th of November 1921. And she just took the money for the manufacture of the poppies. Any extra that was raised was to go to the Earl Hague Fund. Now, of course, Britain, I mean, she didn't, she hadn't patented the poppy. But what Britain, what Hague did then is immediately the poppy became nationalised by the British and the work was handed out to disabled workers in Britain. But Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand and America held good with Madame Gurian and they just reduced their poppies from the poppy factory she had in France over a number of years until they became self-sufficient. So I think this year, we or we should be celebrating this wonderful French woman who did give us the poppy. It, yes, it has its provenance in Macrae's poem. It has its provenance in it was the only flower that grew on the front. But actually, as the memorial in Britain, it is probably, in my opinion, the longest living. And it, you see it on taxis, on lorries outside villages. We should give credit to Madame Gurria. And I'm hoping this year there's a wonderful lady. She has a blog. It's called Poppy Lady Madame gurian.com and she has spent her life beating the drum that we should recognise Madame Gurian. I'm hoping this year she'll have a book published and the British people will, will learn where we got the poppy from and how we got the poppy. And finally, Richard, where can people learn more about your research? Well, they can learn more from my research by buying my book, Great War in the Argonne Forest. It's published by Pen and Sword. It is available through their website. It is available on Amazon. I also understand people have managed to buy it on eBay. Um, I gave the website there www.poppyladymadamgurian.com. Book de Vercois, B U T E D E V A U Q U I O S. They have their own website. That is the the Hill of the Mines next to the forest. Um, there are it, the trouble is is these websites are you know these these groups are all informal sort of collections of volunteers and there, there is a, a the the I talked about the Romania. If you if you type in Romania 1418, you'll find Jean Paul Vries's museum. Now at the moment the 1418 Mers Argonne is a name change. It's going through at the moment, uh, so they haven't got the website set up on that. They've got the website set up at the moment on a thing called Nontulwa 1418. And if you just type in Mers Argonne, I mean initially you'll find a lot of American stuff because it was their big campaign, but there is a lot of information there, and the French tourism websites carry a lot, and they're quite easy to sort of copy and paste and put it into Google Translate. Richard, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...